Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16. That's where we'll be this morning. Well, grab your notes if you have them there uh, to follow along. You see at the top we just have this title, Paul's Plans for the Corinthians. And he had several plans for them. Paul was always a man with a plan, <laughs> and we see that this morning. Uh, notice at verse 1, too, the, the first part of this verse is now concerning. And this is a phrase that you can trace all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul has written. He's replying to what seems to be their letter to him, where they had questions about all sorts of things. And when you see that phrase, now concerning, that's a tip-off that he's replying to something that they were concerned about that they brought up to him. And he begins to talk to them about his plan for their financial gift to the saints in Jerusalem. These saints who were likely suffering due to persecution, there was much persecution in Jerusalem. We also read about in the book of Acts that there was a famine. Can you imagine being in the early church, being in Jerusalem, and not only suffering through real deal severe persecution, but also a famine at the same time? These saints in Jerusalem were in great need, and so that's the first thing Paul is talking to them about. Read with me, I'll cover the first four verses here first. Paul says, "...now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come." When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Well, first let's talk about the process that Paul has laid out for them here, and then we'll talk about the application for us today. And before we get into the first step of the process, I want you just to marvel for a moment at the reality that Paul was still willing to partner with this church in ministry. <laughs> All the problems that this church had, all the ways that you could say the Corinthian church was wayward in their behavior and in the ways they were thinking about things and all the factions that had risen up in that church, Paul was still willing to partner with them. How quick some of us are to reject other Christians. I know I'm guilty of that often. And yet Paul, as an apostle, was still willing to partner with them. Together, they were going to take care of the saints in Jerusalem, and he was prepared to help them in any way that he could. But he tells them about this gift. Again, look at verse 1. He's directing them in the same way that he directed the churches of Galatia. Now, to get that instruction that Paul gave to the Galatians, you can't go to the book of Galatians because it's not in there. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul didn't give them these instructions, but he did so outside of that particular letter. And we find out the details of that instruction in the very next verse, in verse 2, where he tells them what to do. He basically says that the individual Christians were to make personal decisions about giving. They were to be made privately, and weekly on the Lord's Day, these collections were to be brought in and put together into a singular treasury for the church. It's a pretty basic standard way of understanding giving, but we'll talk more about that momentarily. He says also, if you look at verse 3, that particular men were to be selected. The Corinthians were to be entrusted to select their own men. I don't know if I could have done that if I were Paul. Paul, very gracious man, entrusted them to select certain men, men of character, who would be in charge of making sure this gift got to Jerusalem. 
They had to be men of character because it was likely going to be a large sum of money, and they could, of course, easily skim off the top on their way across the Aegean Sea back over toward Jerusalem. How important this must have been to Paul, that they take up this collection, that this particular church care for the other saints in a different part of the world over in Jerusalem. This, you have to realize, this is a Gentile church helping out a church that would most certainly be comprised of mostly Messianic Jews, Jewish by ethnicity, who had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, those to whom James writes in his epistle. James stayed in Jerusalem. James oversaw much of the work there. But for Paul, this was really important that the Gentiles over in Achaia, or as we know it today, Greece, that they care for these Jewish believers. And we have more from Paul on this specific gift and on that specific topic in Romans. If you just turn back to the letter before this one, turn back in your Bible to the book preceding 1 Corinthians. It's the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, look at how Paul speaks of this particular collection as he writes to the believers in Rome. 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians, Romans 15, starting in verse 25. Romans 15, 25. As he's winding down this letter to those Christians, he says, I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. This was Paul's goal in his missionary journey. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, there's our region, that's Greece, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, it's the same thing we've been reading about in 1 Corinthians 16. A contribution to the poor in Jerusalem from Greece, the Corinthians. But look what he says in verse 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. There was a sense in which Paul was saying in this collection, the Gentile Christians were indebted to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and by showing them this love through an offering, a special gift to them in their distress, they were showing a great unity a great unity that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 2, that the barrier of hostility has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. There's one new man in Christ, and they're demonstrating this unity and this love through such a gift. You know, I was a, uh, a missionary for a short time in my life, a few years. My wife and I, when we came to Utah, we came out here as missionaries. We were with a missions organization that, that recruits and sends out missionaries, and we came to Utah with the support of other believers. And you have to raise that support. It's a process called deputation. That's a word you don't hear all the time, deputation. And deputation isn't fun. <laughs> Going around from church to church or even household to household and telling people about your ministry, that they may consider whether or not they will financially support you, that you can get to a certain mark where you can go to your mission field and then live off of that support and focus solely on your ministry because of the money, the financial support given to you from other people. Well, we raised just a small amount of support in a quick amount of time, and so when we came out here, I also had a day job. But what was interesting about that process there were certain Christians, certain people that you would meet in certain churches or perhaps you knew for a long time. And these people were just people. 
They were just people. Some of them, you know, you met and maybe you weren't that impressed. But then their checks start coming in monthly. You start seeing their name on the support sheet that you get from your missions organization and they care enough about you and they believe enough in your ministry that they're going to support you with their own finances on a regular basis. All of a sudden, you start thinking about that person differently. <laughs> you start thinking about, that person cares about me. That person cares about me enough to sacrifice financially in this way. And you can just imagine as the Jewish believers were there suffering in Jerusalem and here come these believers from Greece or a big gift from Greece, whoever ended up transporting the gift. And they said, this is from your Gentile brothers and sisters. They care about you. Can you imagine what that did for unity in the church? I think it probably had an amazing effect. And caring for the poor in the church was always a key element of Paul's ministry. This apostle always cared about caring for the poor in all the churches. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, this is how Paul describes his ministry. He says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. You see how this shaped Paul's ministry? He was off to the Gentiles in Achaia, the Greeks. He was off to minister to them, to evangelize, to plant churches, whatever the Lord might have. And these Jews were saying to him, we're going to go to the Jews, but as you go to the Gentiles, just remember to help the poor. Perhaps they said, even the poor Jews in Jerusalem. The famine could have already started by that point. And Paul here is fulfilling that vision by God's grace, going to the Gentiles, remembering to help the poor. He's eager to do it. And by God's grace, so were the Macedonians and the Greeks. Paul says, if you look at our text again today, in verse 3, he will vouch for these men. He says he'll send letters with them. These are letters that Paul would write himself, signed Paul, <laughs> Apostle Paul. He would write letters, sending with them, saying, these are good men, this is a good gift, accept this gift on behalf of the Corinthians. And he even goes as far to say that he would go with them if necessary in verse 4. If it's proper, if it's fitting, if it's a worthy cause, I will go also and they will go with me. Although Paul was an apostle, he was still a servant, wasn't he? Although Paul had full authority over the church that God had given them, he was still a servant. He was still someone who made sacrifices. He was willing to shift his plans around. He wasn't going to be an overlord to these people. He says, this is what you're to do, and I'm going to be right there with you. And I don't know about you, but the best bosses I've ever had in my life are the ones who are willing to work with me. Not just tell me what to do, but to come alongside. The ones at the grocery store, the managers who would tuck their tie into their button-up shirts to help us unload the pallet, right? Those are the good bosses. That's the good authority. That's sacrificial servant leadership. And here Paul says, I can move my schedule around to serve you in this way to make this trip. But he was certainly an authority. Don't get me wrong. Look back up again at verses 1 and 2. What is Paul doing? He's directing this church. He's saying, this is what you are to do. He had the authority as someone who didn't attend there on a weekly basis. 
Can you imagine if someone wrote us a letter and said, this is what you're to do? Who are you? You don't go here, right? He was an apostle. Though he didn't attend there, he was an authority over that church. It was before they had elders and deacons, apparently, all throughout the letter. You have no mention of elders or deacons. And so Paul's instructing them how they are to give. That's the process. Now I want us to think about the application. I see that there are three significant elements or principles that continue in this passage for us today that we would do well to pursue application in our lives, and that'll look differently for everybody. There's no law that's laid down here for us, okay? These aren't commands that you are to follow really, you know, hard and rigidly, but I do think there are principles that continue. One, I believe giving is to be done by and for the Lord's people and on the Lord's day as much as possible. Giving is to be done by and for the Lord's people and on the Lord's day as much as possible. First, let's discuss the Lord's day. You'll notice in verse 2, Paul says this is to take place on the first day of every week. The first day. Well, what was significant about the first day? It wasn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day. The first day was the day that Jesus rose again, the day that our Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. It's now the Lord's day, we call it. It's a new day of gathered worship. We are no longer observing the Sabbath as they did under the law, but we are now gathering and meeting for worship on the Lord's day. It's a special day. You read through the book of Acts and you see the pattern established by the early church. They would meet on the first day of the week over and over again. They were meeting on the first day of the week. And actually, in the book of Revelation, this is one you may forget about, when John was seeing the vision that has become Revelation, the book of Revelation. Look at what it says in Revelation 1.10. You don't have to turn there. Paul writes, or John writes rather, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The Lord's day is what the first day of the week became known as Jesus' day. That's why we are here today on the Lord's day. We are not gathering on the Sabbath as some do. We're gathering on the Lord's day. Notice here too in verse Two, that Paul says every week. This wasn't a one-off special offering. This was a regular offering. Every week this was to happen as an aspect of regular worship. Now, of course, this practice evolved into supporting local ministries. What's in view here is this Corinthian church building up one big collection that they would send off to Jerusalem. But eventually, this practice ended up being the main means by which we support our local ministry. Those who labor at preaching and teaching, those missionaries that we support as a local church, that all comes through the weekly offering as it builds up over time. Now, as with the practice of communion, the ordinance of communion, there is great freedom in practicing giving, observing and practicing giving, Weekly is the charge that Paul gave them here. He says this is to be done every week. But for us today, I would say regular giving is a worthy goal. <laughs> regular giving in the Christian life is a worthy goal for each Christian. Let's notice here too, let's not pass over this, that this is one church caring for another church. This is the church in Corinth caring for the church in Jerusalem, and just how important it is that we still do that in our day. How important... It is that we know what's going on in other like-minded churches, that we have a cross-church fellowship, and that we care enough about other like-minded churches, that we know of their needs, and when we hear of their needs, we want to act. We want to support. 
See, you can't care for another like-minded church in our area if you leave here today and just never talk to them. You care for other churches if you're connected and you know what's going on and God puts it in your heart to care for them. So giving is to be done by and for the Lord's people on the Lord's day as much as possible. Giving is also to be done joyfully in accordance with our assets. Whatever the Lord gives us for our assets, we are to joyfully give in proportion to that free will love offerings to God. This is His means of care in the local church. Look again at verse 2. It's not just every week on the first day of the week, but this money is to be put aside and saved as each one prospers. It's in accordance with how God prospers each one. It's a free will love offering that God works through our hearts by the prosperity that He gives. Just like we're not under a Sabbath law, you notice here we're not under a tithing law. How easy it would have been for Paul just to say, each one of you is to give 10% of his income. That would have been very simple. And that would have been very clear cut too, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have to wonder how much. Well, God told you, 10%. Well, we are not under any tithing laws. And there were multiple tithing laws in the Old Testament, by the way. Many people want to speak of tithing as though it was just one law, 10%, that's it. There were multiple tithing laws. And when you put it all together, it was over 20% they were giving. So who here wants to tithe? <laughs> 10%, that's actually easy compared to what was put on the Israelites. Well, we're not under a tithing law. We are commissioned to generously care for one another. That's the goal. We were just studying this past Tuesday morning, our, our men's group was going through this little book by John Owen. We're in the second half of it now. And this past Tuesday morning, the little chapter we were looking at was Helping the Poor. And his focus was helping the poor in the church. And he gave all kinds of great insight, all kinds of good conversation fodder. But I want to share with you this quote, this short quote from John Owen about helping the poor in the church. John Owen says, The relief of the poor brethren in the church has a twofold rule. Number one, their necessity. And number two, others' abilities. Help must be proportional to these two things, provided that those who are poor live appropriately for their condition. So number one, what's the necessity? What's the need? Who has the need and what is the need? That's the first thing you look at. Number two is what is the ability of others? What ability do we have to help? And as we help the poor, there must be a proportion between not only their need, but also our ability. It's not a tithe. It's a free will love offering as the Lord leads. That's how we're directed. And it says, as he may prosper, according to whatever profits God brought along in the previous week. One commentator insightfully pointed out, this command to give and to give as the Lord has prospered to the Corinthians, that included, of course, many slaves in Corinth. There were many people in the church who did not have a regular income. They weren't receiving, as we would call it today, regular paychecks. And so how were they to give? Well, this phrase, as he may prosper, kind of covers the whole gamut, doesn't it? God still prospers each one in his own way. God still brings prosperity into our lives in different ways. And in accordance to that prosperity, each one is to give. And this is a helpful reminder in a culture consumed with greed. Do you believe our culture is consumed with greed? 
as people from back where I'm from would say, boy, I tell you, I was, I've been watching some sports here lately. It's a great time for sports. Spring and fall are great times for watching sports. And now that they have apparently legalized sports betting, when you watch sports, it's 99% about sports betting and 1% about the game. And I've never bet on sports. I have no idea how it works. I don't know what plus or negative means. I don't know what any of the, the numbers mean. I just wanted to see the highlights. And all that anyone can talk about is what this means for the bottom line, what this means for this or that or the other thing. Now, I want to say this clearly. Betting isn't sinful, okay? You can bet without greed. Greed is sinful. If you can bet without greed, that's not sinful. Betting can be very foolish. It is a wisdom versus foolishness issue. But if your first thought with your prosperity is, how can I turn this money into more money for me? That's greed. And that's sinful. If your first thought is, how can I take this money and turn it into more money for whatever the Lord may have for me? That's just good stewardship. If your first thought is, God's been giving me this money and I want to sacrificially give, that's giving and that's good too. Greed is not good. And our first thought when we think about how the Lord has prospered us shouldn't just be, how can I get more for more sake? But it's what would the Lord have for us? And our goal is to bless the Lord from our wealth because He's over our wealth, isn't He? Our goal is to serve as He calls us each individually to serve in different ways, including with our finances. And giving is to be done with joy, of course, as with all worship. Turn with me to the book following this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is here in 2 Corinthians talking about this same gift. I never realized this until my study this week. What Paul's talking about in our passage today, 1 Corinthians 16, and what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 9 is the same gift. Paul has not yet picked up this gift from the Corinthians. And start with me in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, "'For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you in the to the Macedonians.' Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence." So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. That's the gift to the saints in Jerusalem, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, look at what he says in verse 6, in verse 7. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, a great place for Paul to write, give 10%. Would have been very easy. Figure it out, count it down to the final penny. How much is 10%? That's what you give. That's not it. What are our parameters here? Don't give grudgingly, give joyfully. Be cheerful about it according to the way God has prospered you. 
Giving is to be done joyfully in accordance with the assets that the Lord has given us. And then thirdly, as we think about application here, giving is to be done with great intentionality and security. Giving should be done for a specific purpose. Giving should not be done in such a way that it's just general storehousing for a church. Now, I am not against reserve funds. You guys know this. We're not against reserve funds here. We have a reserve fund. Reserve funds are helpful and good. But I've heard of many, many churches, I could name a few right now, that have hundreds of thousands of dollars and no plan. People have been cheerfully giving for a long time. That part is great. But just no plan. Just general storehousing. I think there needs to be more intentionality than that. We should be givers of what God has given us, and if we're just giving into a storehouse with no plan, perhaps we're not actually giving. Also, we see security here, too. Multiple people were to watch over these gifts. They were to select men of character to watch over the gifts. Remember, they were traveling with coin, not with checks. (laughs) They weren't sending something through PayPal. This had to be taken physically, by foot, with boat or whatever they could find, Probably lots of clanking around, lots of noise, lots of opportunity to be robbed along the way. There needed to be great security. And of course, this is a principle we can apply in our giving today. This is a word for the local church, to have great accountability and security in what is given to the Lord. Because these aren't gifts that are given to the saints in Jerusalem. Do you realize this? This gift isn't given to the saints in Jerusalem. This gift is given to the Lord. And the Lord is caring for His people in Jerusalem through this. Although there's a specific cause, there's intentionality, there's purpose with the gift, the gift is to the Lord. This is an act of worship. And when the saints in Jerusalem receive this gift, it's not on them to go around and find out who gave and go to thank each one. It's on them to thank the Lord. That's the Lord providing to them. And so there must be great security around such a gift. And don't you love Paul's strategy with this here too? He's saying that they should each give the first day of each week, set aside and save, so that, verse 2, no collections be made when I come. Paul knew that, of course, over time, as the gift built up, there would be more there than just one shot of one offering. He's letting them know that this gift should build up for a generous gift, that could be taken to the saints in Jerusalem. Great intentionality and with great security. Now, quickly moving on to the next part, next order of business here. Paul wanted to let them in on his calendar too. Let's pick up in verse 5. Paul's sharing with them his itinerary. (laughs) He was not going to shy away from this really rocky, awkward relationship with the Corinthians. He could have said, boy, you know, I'd love to get to you sometime soon, dot, 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 and that's it. Perhaps some of you have sent a text like that or an email like that or said that over the phone, and you have no plans to make it happen. Well, look what Paul says. I will come to you. What a bold guy. I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 
Paul was all about service. Look at those last couple of verses. He was in Ephesus, and he wanted to stay there for two reasons. There's a wide door of effective service, and there are many adversaries. Those two things seem like they don't go together, but boy, do they. You know, God had previously closed the door to Asia for Paul. We read about this in the book of Acts. He was on his missionary journey. Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to Asia. But now the door has been opened. But now God has opened the door. And Paul, being the servant that he was, all about service, he was ready to go. And I love this short little note from Robert Gramacki. He has a way of wording things that I just really like. He said, Paul knew that his responsibility was to go through open doors, not to fret about closed ones. <laughs> you can apply that in your life in a few places, can't you? Paul knew that his responsibility was to go through open doors, and he says, God has opened a big door here in Asia. That would be what we call Turkey today. And he was there serving. He was there for three years, Paul was, in Ephesus. Three years he served in western Turkey, what he called Asia. Isn't that just a bummer that in the Bible they call that Asia? Like, that is not Asia, right? <laughs> but but uh, we'll just say Turkey, okay? He was in western Turkey. But to get a glimpse as to what was going on in those three years, let me read to you Acts 19, verses 9 and 10. Paul said, while he was in Ephesus, some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia, read Turkey, <laughs> heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This ministry was so effective that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Paul says. Very effective ministry. That's why he spent so much time there. What an amazing door for effective service. And for two years, he was in one place meeting regularly, the school of Tyrannus. Children, his last name was Oris Rex. Bad joke. Okay. <laughs> You'll get it over lunch. Well, it's likely it was during this time when Paul was spending these years in Ephesus early on that he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentioned a letter before 1 Corinthians. Did you know that your 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians? <laughs> this is the first letter to the Corinthians that was canon, though, the first one that God decided to preserve because He inspired it. But it's likely Paul wrote that first letter early on at his time in Ephesus. And what he's saying here in verses 8 and 9 is that with effective service, mainly verse 9, I suppose, with effective service comes adversaries. <laughs> and isn't this true? Adversity always accompanies opportunity. Anytime there's an opportunity that the Lord presents, He lets there be plenty of adversity too. You ask anybody who's ever led anything, any opportunity will always come with adversity. Think back to the adversity that Paul faced in Ephesus. This is in Acts 19. That's where you had all these worshipers of the, the god Artemis and Paul was being chased around, and they were saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They didn't like that Paul was preaching about Jesus. This is where Paul ran into Demetrius and the silversmiths, those craftsmen who wanted to persecute Paul. He was being chased all over by these people who wanted to kill him for preaching Jesus. But Paul wanted to stay because he says, yeah, there's adversity, but this is a great opportunity from the Lord. 
Paul was all about people, whether it came with great adversity or small adversity. He desired to see churches planted. Paul was just a true missionary, wasn't he? He was always ready to just go, go, go. There was one writer who said Paul couldn't walk by a boat that was anchored at harbor without thinking, let's just get that boat off its anchor and let's take it somewhere. Paul couldn't look at a mountain range without thinking, who lives on the other side of that and how can we get there? Just a true missionary spirit. And I wonder if there are some here today who are missionaries to the Gentiles, as Paul would be. Those who would be sent out for certain journeys or even a long stay somewhere because you're burdened. You have that same missionary zeal to go, go, go wherever God might take you. What an amazing calling that is. Do you have a a burden for the nations or a burden for a particular nation? Consider what the Lord might be calling you to in, in your life. And notice, too, Paul's wording here. He says so confidently in verse 5, I will come to you. And then notice what he says later on, if the Lord permits, right? You see several I will or I am statements, but it is also wrapped with verse 7, if the Lord permits. He held that in a delicate balance, just like James calls us to do. Don't say, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to make a profit, I'm going to do that, do business over here. It's all if the Lord permits. That's how Christians are to think. And what's interesting, when you look at what happened in Paul's life, these plans didn't develop. Paul says, verse 5, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. Look how confident he is. For I am going through Macedonia. That's not the order of how these things worked in Paul's life. This didn't happen this way. He didn't go up through Macedonia and see the Corinthians next that way. It didn't happen like that. So now what I want to do is walk you through something that may be a tad bit boring for you, but I hope it's somewhat interesting. Go ahead and pull up the map there if you would, Walker. I'll kind of lead you as to when I want the next slide. Let's get your bearings. Let's get your bearings here. You can all find Italy, right? The boot, okay? And east of Italy, you have Greece. If your eyes are good enough, you can see it labeled there. Greece is where Corinth was located. And then east of Greece, you have Asia. Jerry got it right. Good. Asia. That's what Paul's been calling Asia. Okay, go to the next one, Walker, if you would. There are two stars that are going to pop up. The star on the the western half there, that's Corinth in southern Greece. And in the uh, eastern side, on the western edge of Turkey, that's Ephesus. So Paul is writing to the people at the left star from the right star. Now, I want to walk you through piecing together the historical data that we have from the book of Acts and other places as to what really happened here. On his second missionary journey, Paul planted the church in Corinth. Paul was sent out from Antioch, that's off the screen to the east. He was sent out and he went down through Corinth and he spent a year and a half where that star is. And that's a church that he planted, spending a year and a half, 18 months there on his second missionary journey. He then left Corinth again, that left star. He left Corinth with two names you might recognize, Priscilla and Aquila, this power couple that God used in the early church. And he was on his way back to where he began his journey, off the screen to the east. Paul was on his way back with them. But when they got to Ephesus, where that star on the right is, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there. And he told the believers at Ephesus, I'll be back. 
you guys stay here. Priscilla and Aquila, you stay here. I'm going back to Antioch. And he was going to make a quick turnaround to start his third missionary journey. But left in, Ant- or left in uh, Ephesus there, the right star, was Priscilla and Aquila with the other believers. Now, as Paul arrived back in Antioch, a man showed up in Ephesus named Apollos. And this is important. This name's coming up in our passage today. A man named Apollos showed up in Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla, who were there in Ephesus, they had to help him out. This is that account in the book of Acts where Apollos was just preaching, and he was a powerful preacher. He was filled with the Spirit of God. But they had to take him to the side and say, you got a few things wrong. (laughs) They had to help him teach the Word of God more accurately, the Word of God says. Well, after that, Apollos sailed across the Aegean Sea to Greece. He went to Corinth, where the left star is. And while he was over there in Greece, or as they call it, Achaia, Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he spent three years at that star on the right. Now, during those years, Paul corresponded with Apollos at some point that we're going to see momentarily, and he wrote the Corinthians a couple of letters, but he heard from Chloe's people, Paul did, and others, how that first letter was received, and he learned more about what they wanted to know. As we read through this book of 1 Corinthians, like I mentioned, we see now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. This is Paul's second letter written to these people. They had already received his first letter, and he found out they had more questions, so he's addressing them one by one from Ephesus. And as Paul was in Ephesus, and before he wrote this current letter, he sent Timothy to go to the Corinthians. You guys remember Timothy from the Bible? He was in Ephesus, and before he wrote this letter, he sent Timothy to go to Corinth. But apparently, Timothy didn't take a straight shot. Go to the next slide, if you would there, Walker. It seems as though Timothy followed that red dotted line up through Macedonia. That's the area circled in black. Timothy must have taken that route because Paul sends Timothy, off he goes, and then he writes this letter and says, when Timothy comes to you, receive him well. And he believes the letter is going to get there before Timothy will. Well, as Paul was waiting for Timothy to return with news about how they received the letter of 1 Corinthians we've been studying. At some point, he decided he was going to go to Corinth himself. And he went by sea, apparently. He didn't take the long route that Timothy went. He went straight across. And this visit was really bad. Paul went to go see the Corinthians, and it was a sorrowful visit, Scripture says. His relationship with the church only got worse after that. And shortly after that visit, he wrote another letter to the Corinthians, which is also now lost. That would be 3 Corinthians. And so he wrote another one, 4 Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians. Now, this is pretty confusing, isn't it? There's a lot of moving parts. I had to try to piece it all together the right way this week, and it took me a couple of hours. But Paul really, really cared about this church even though he was continually damaged by them, he was brought to sorrow by them, and he caused them sorrow. And his relationship over time just got worse and worse. But now as we think back to our text today and we look at Paul's plans, where are we on Paul's timeline? Well, remember, this is, before he, or this is after he sent Timothy, rather, but before he had that really sorrowful visit with them. And he says to them, look in verse 6, Perhaps I will come stay with you after going through Macedonia, or even spend the winter there, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. 
Paul says that he's going to come to them, but not only is he going to come to them, he's going to stay with them. Not only is he going to stay with them, perhaps he'll stay the winter with them. And not only will he stay the winter with them, but perhaps they'll support him on his way out. When he says there in verse 6, send me on my way, this includes financial support, food, making plans, perhaps sending people as security with Paul because traveling was so dangerous in those days. Perhaps uh, the Corinthians were pretty surprised when they read this part. Remember earlier in the letter, Paul says, I haven't taken anything from you, though I could have. As an apostle, I forfeited that support. Now he says, when I come again, perhaps you'll support me and send me off with that support. And Paul definitely wanted quality time with them. Turn back in the letter to chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Look at what Paul said earlier he was going to do when he got there. 1 Corinthians 4.16, it says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. (laughs) Boy, I don't know why that visit turned out to be so sorrowful. It sounded like it was going to be a really fun time. (laughs) Paul had great intention to spend quality time with them, and surely there would be lots of rebuking. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that that visit was indeed sorrowful. It was a sorrowful visit that set their relationship back even further. Now, you might wonder, whatever happened to this gift that they saved up? We actually don't have a ton of information about this gift for the saints in Jerusalem, other than later, when Paul finished his third missionary journey, he was back in Jerusalem, and in Acts 24, Paul says that he brought alms and offerings to his nation. Presumably, included in those alms and offerings were the gifts from the Corinthian believers, but that's all we know. Now, I want to finish up today by looking at these two other potential visitors, verses 10 through 12, and consider what we have to learn from this passage. There was one visitor who would be much more well-received than the other. Verse 10, now if Timothy comes, Paul says, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. (laughs) Well, Apollos was the one they wanted to come. Notice again in verse 12, Paul starts with concerning, now concerning or but concerning. It's likely that the Corinthians wrote to Paul and said, please send Apollos. And that's why he's addressing that specifically. But he says first that Timothy is planning on coming, and it's not a guaranteed visit. You see again the use of the word if. Now, if Timothy comes to you, Paul had sent him, but it wasn't a guarantee that he would come. He was coming as Paul's representative. And Paul says, don't scare the boy. (laughs) You know it's an interesting church if you've got to write ahead and say, hey, you got a visitor coming this Sunday? Don't scare him. (laughs) I hope no one has to do that for us. It's likely that the Corinthians, the ones especially who had animosity toward Paul, were going to take it out on Paul's representative, Timothy. I love what David Lowry wrote, another 
short little note that just worded well, that Timothy might have cause to fear while ministering in Corinth confirms, as this letter indicates, working with the Corinthian church was no picnic. (laughs) Make sure you don't scare the daylights out of Timothy, Paul says. There is an aspect, of course, where Timothy was a timid man, but I think this says more about the Corinthians than it does about Timothy, doesn't it? Don't scare him. In fact, he goes on to say, protect him. Let no one despise him, verse 11, but protect him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me. He was very useful for Paul, and the Corinthians were enlisted to support him as a teacher of apostolic doctrine. And then you have this man, Apollos. As I mentioned, in Acts 19, you can read about him. A very gifted young man, a powerful preacher, and he was liked by many in Corinth. Remember, there was a time in that long stretch of events I was reading off to you when the map was up there. There was a stretch of time when Apollos went across the Aegean Sea and spent time in Corinth. It's likely at that time he got to know the church, and the church got to know him. And the church wanted him back. They wanted him back more than the planter of the church, Paul. They wanted Apollos back more than they wanted the guy who spent 18 months there. Apollos, it says, verse 12, he's waiting for the right time. He's not at all ready to go at this time, Paul says. And we do, no, do well to notice that Paul doesn't command him to go either. Paul could have said, no, Apollos, you need to go. But here, Paul tells the Corinthians the option was up to him, and he said, eh, not at this time. Notice, too, how Paul didn't run from working with Apollos. This was a church where, if you take your mind all the way back to chapter 1, people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus, and you have all these factions that are fighting against one another. And Paul planted this church. In his flesh, can't you imagine Paul saying, "Uh, no, 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 you are all team Paul. I spent a year and a half there. I gave up my time and resources to plant that church. Don't talk about Apollos or Peter. We don't even know if Peter's ever been there, (laughs) which we don't. Paul probably did. <laughs> but, but Paul in his flesh could have made that argument. This is my church, as sadly many people do today. Many pastors out there say, this is my church. And if that was the case, if Paul was thinking that way, the last person he would want to go there is Apollos, this competitor in the ministry. But Paul didn't see Apollos as a competitor, did he? He's a teammate in the ministry. He's a co-laborer in the gospel. And I love this quote from Gordon Fee. It's, uh, you know, the, we're winding down on the sermons here. I want to try to get all the commentators one last quote before we finish up. Gordon Fee, he says, if the church in Corinth were Paul's, the last person in the world he would want to return would be Apollos. Indeed, the real pressure would be to keep him away for some time while things cooled off. But not so, Paul. Apollos watered what Paul had planted. That's chapter 3, verse 6. And all things were theirs, the Corinthians, in Christ Jesus, including Apollos. So, for the sake of the growth of the community, he can urge Apollos to return, despite some of the inherent difficulties that would entail. Ministry is a team effort, isn't it? Church planting, gospel, evangelism, that's a team effort. And Paul's godly perspective of God's church propelled him to encourage Apollos to go. 
Apollos likely wanted Paul to sort things out with him before he went there. <laughs> I can imagine Apollos' response being something like, I'm not going to that hornet's nest. <laughs> Paul, you go over there. You're the apostle. You go over there and figure it all out. And Paul, of course, was very willing to do such a task. So what on earth can we take away from all of that? Well, as we consider our full passage today, God's church still sends and receives people, Right? God's church still sends and receives money. God's church still sends and receives opportunities. These people, money, opportunities, all of these things are just the lifeblood of the church. You just see it happening all the time, in and out, sending, receiving. And you are involved, aren't you? The right answer is yes. You are involved, aren't you? (laughs) I see a lot of faces that say, am I? (laughs) Yeah, you are. The church is full of people, and through people, God is working out His plan. Whether it's money, whether it's opportunity, whether it's some major sacrifice of your life, you are involved. And we must seek to grow in our love for God's church always. Because you're never going to get to the point where you've loved the church enough. This is Jesus' bride we're talking about. The bride of Christ We have to dearly love. It's the people, the people who make up the body of Christ. We are to love and cherish God's church. 1 Corinthians 13, perhaps the most well-known passage in all of 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, on and on it goes. That's about love for the church. The context isn't about your boyfriend or girlfriend. The context is about the bride of Christ, the people of God. We must pursue opportunities to serve, as as Tyler helpfully reminded us in his devotional. We are to pursue opportunities to serve in such a way that if we were missing, we'd feel it because we love the people of God. And Paul sure was a people person, wasn't he? Even a tough church like the Corinthians, he says, I'm coming back. He's going to walk right into that buzzsaw again (laughs) because by God's sovereign grace, he loved them. He loved people. And to an extent, for every single one of us, it takes God's sovereign grace in your life to love people. Some more than others. Some of you really are tempted to be a recluse, tempted to be a hermit somewhere, because people cause problems. People make life a little more complicated, don't they? People make life messy, because if it was just you, your life would be perfect. Clean and pure, free from worry. What a lie. But to truly love people, to be willing, you know, in Paul's day, to get on a boat and to deal with all the dangers, the wild beasts he's been dealing with in his journeys, that's evidence of God's sovereign grace. Ministry is a team effort, and team efforts come with joys and sorrows. Team efforts come with Mountaintops and valleys, and you're on the ride. You're on the team. You've been enlisted in God's army to storm the the shores of the enemy. And there will be battles that we win together, and there will be battles that we lose together. There will be times of great success where we just feel like everything's going right, and there will be times, particularly Sunday morning services, where it feels like everything's going wrong. 
There will be times when we feel great unity among each other, like we are really of one heart and mind and spirit. And there will be other times when we just wonder if this church is going to make it another week. Those times come. Joys are there along with adversity, along with hardship, but you are on the team. And we are to pour into one another out of love for God because these are God's people. We are not owners of ourselves. We belong to God. And I want to close with a quote from Warren Wiersbe, who's so good on the topic of Christian ministry. He said, money and opportunities are valueless without people. The church's greatest asset is people, and yet too often the church takes people for granted. Jesus did not give His disciples money, but He did invest three years training them for service so that they might seize the opportunities He would present them. If people are prepared, then God will supply both the opportunities and the money so that His work will be accomplished. That's a good word, isn't it? Let's pray. God, we thank You for this church. We thank You for Your capital C church over the whole world, and we thank You for this particular local outpost of Your work. God, give us a heart for people, a heart for the gospel to go out and reach people that haven't been reached yet. Give us a desire to send and receive. Help us to foster humble loving unity in the church, that each one of us would have the mindset of a Paul or an Apollos, that we are on the same team doing the Lord's work, seeking to advance your purposes, not our own agenda. Give us, give us the, the worldview that Jesus gave us, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Lord, have that be in front of us, that we would really take hold of that, that you would really pour that out in our lives, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, and that as you prosper us, we would consider how it is that you're calling us to serve. Lord, we thank you for doing through your Spirit what could never happen under the law, that you are working in each individual heart in grace and freedom and liberty and love to take care of your people. What an amazing thing. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would bless the rest of this day for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.